I have found the key Honey darling, you believe Lonesome roads we've seen Well honey darling, keep your eyes wide and see That we can join our hands And take for hours all of this land Honey darling, you understand if it's hill in your heart, I can. Mercury is currently being spoiled, mm-hmm. rotten, by Rachel, um, and this is Heaven's Gate. No, it's not. What is it? <laughs> it's Armchair Apocrypha. That's right. This is Armchair Apocrypha, the uh, podcast where armchair experts tell possibly true stories. I had, possibly. Um, possibly. I had my wisdom teeth taken out on Tuesday, so... Yeah. My voice might be a little weird, and I apologize for that. I'm also on a little bit of drugs right now, so um, if I'm slow or uh, quiet or anything like that, I apologize. It's all right. We forgive you. Good. How was your week? It was good. Yeah? Trying to think about it. Sorry. (laughs) What did you do? I went to the Indy 500. Yeah, you went to the Indy 500 last week. That was a ton of fun. Yeah. I had a good time. You went camping, went got, camping. got offered acid. <laughs> um, I had a great time. Got got my tan on. Got your tan on. And it was fun. Yeah. And my friend Allie, who I brought, really enjoyed it. It was her first time seeing it. Good. So she got really into it. Did she bet on it? No. No. She's usually the... She's a gambler. Yeah, she's usually a gambler. <laughs> so I figured that she would. No, she, I don't think she knew enough about it to gamble. Fair enough. But the person she went for came in second, so. Good. But I don't think, I don't know <laughs> what what it's like uh, betting on racing, so. Yeah. I don't know, but it was a good time, good time. They said it was supposed to rain, it didn't rain at all. Good. It rained a lot here. I heard. Yeah. Yeah, so sorry about that. <laughs> we took all of your rain. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, see, there he goes. There he goes. That's all right. Okay. Come on, buddy. Get comfortable. Come on. There you go. All right. Ready when you are. (laughs) So, uh, last episode, I talked a little bit about um, the Weather Underground organization. I was really surprised that you'd never heard of them. Oh, my God, Mercury, sit down. Um, And so I thought that I'd talk a little bit more about them and a little bit less about Bernadette and Wharton. Mercury, yeah, sit good. down. That's why. Um, so just to catch everybody up a little bit, if you haven't uh, listened um, to last week's episode, the Weather Underground started as um, Students for Democratic Socialism, no, Students for a Democratic Society, um, in 1969 with the 
uh, FBI murder of Fred Hampton, they radicalized into um, the organization, the Weather Underground. Do you just want to start the episode over? No, I okay. don't. Keep going. Um, they radicalized into the Weather Underground organization. Um, Fred Hampton on December 4th, uh, 1989, or 1969, uh, Fred Hampton was murdered by an FBI informant. Um, who fired into his uh, apartment after he'd been drugged with barbiturates. Um, the Students for Democratic Society uh, held a national council meeting on December 26th in Flint, Michigan, which you may know uh, does not have clean water. water. Um, the meeting, dubbed the War Council by 300 people who attended, adopted uh, a call for violent revolution. Uh, Bernardine Dorn opened the conference by telling the, the delegates they needed to stop being afraid and begins, uh, began armed struggle. Over the next five days, the participants met in informal groups to discuss what going underground meant, how best to organize collectives, and justifications for violence. In the evening, the groups reconvened for a mass wargasm, practicing karate, engaging in physical exercise, singing songs, and listening to speeches. The War Council ended with a major speech by John Jacobs, uh, Jacobs condemned pacifism of white middle-class American youth, a belief which he claimed they held because they were insulated from the violence which afflicted, uh, afflicted black communities and the poor. He predicted a successful revolution and declared that youth were moving away from passivity and apathy and toward a new high-energy culture of repersonalization brought on by drugs, sex, and armed revolution. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yep. Uh, quote unquote, we're against everything that's good and decent in honky America. Honky? Honky. God. Uh, two major decisions came out of the War Council. The first was to go underground and to begin a violent armed struggle against the state without attempting to organize or mobilize broad swath of the public. The Weather other Underground hoped to create underground collectives in major cities throughout the country. In fact, the Weathermen eventually created only three significant active collectives. One in California, one in the Midwest, and one in New York City. Okay. Uh, the New York City Collective was led by Jacobs and Terry Robbins and included Ted Gold, Kathy Budin, Kathy Wilkerson, and Diana Auden. Jacobs was one of Robbins' biggest supporters and pushed the Weathermen to let Robbins be as violent as he wanted to be. The Weathermen national leadership agreed, as did the New York City Collective. The Collective's first target was Judge John Murtaugh, who was overseeing the trial of uh, the Black Panther 21. Uh, the second major decision was the dissolution of the Students for Democratic Society. After the summer of 1969, fragmentation of uh, the Students for Democratic Society, Weathermen's adherents explicitly claimed themselves the real leaders of the SDS and retained control of the SDS national office. Thereafter, any leaflet, label, or logo bearing the name Students for Democratic Society was in fact the views and politics of the Weathermen not of the slate elected by the Progressive Labor. Uh, the Weathermen contained the vast majority of former SDS National Committee members, including Mark Rudd, David Gilbert, and Bernardine Dorn. Uh, the group, while small, was able to uh, commandeer in the mantle of SDS and all of its membership lists, but with Weathermen in charge, there was little, to no, uh, little or no support from local branches or members of the organization, and local chapters uh, soon disbanded. At the War Council, the Weathermen had decided to close the SDS National Office, ending the major campus-based organization of the 1960s, which at its peak was a mass organization with 100,000 members. Damn. Um, let's see. 
shortly before the Days of Rage demonstrations on October 6, 1969, the weathermen planted a bomb that blew up a statue in Chicago built to commemorate police casualties incurred in the 1886 Haymarket riot, which I've talked about previously. Yep. Uh, the blast broke nearly 100 windows and scattered pieces of the statue onto the Kennedy Expressway below. The statue was rebuilt and unveiled on May 4, 1970, coincidentally the same day as the Kent State Massacre, only to be blown up by the weathermen a second time on October 6, 1970. The statue was rebuilt once again, and Mayor Richard J. Daley posted a 24-hour police guard to protect it, but the statue was later destroyed again a third time. The monument was rebuilt and is located at uh, Chicago Police Headquarters. And if anyone wants to blow it up again, I wholeheartedly support you. Wants to, oh, got it. Um, one of the first acts that the weathermen, after splitting from SDS, was to announce they would hold a Days of Rage that autumn. <laughs> this was advertised to bring the war home, hoping to cause sufficient chaos to, quote-unquote, wake the American public out of what they saw as complacency towards the role of the U.S. in the Vietnam War. The weathermen meant it to be the largest protest of the decade. They had been told by their regional cadre to expect thousands to attend. However, when they arrived, they found only a few hundred people. Mm-hmm. According to Bill Ayers in 2003, uh, the Days of Rage was an attempt to break from the norms of kind of uh, the norms of kind of acceptable theater of here are the anti-war people, containable, marginal, predictable, and here's the little path they're going to march down, and here's where they can make their little statement. We wanted to say no. What we're going to do is whatever we want to do to stop the violence in Vietnam. Protests did not meet Ayer's stated expectations. Uh, Though the October 8, 1969 rally in Chicago had failed to draw as many as the weathermen had anticipated, the two or three hundred who did attend shocked police by rioting through the affluent Gold Coast neighborhood. They smashed the windows of banks and those of many cars. Um, The crowd ran four blocks before encountering police barricades. They charged the police but broke into small groups. More than 1,000 police counterattacked. Many protesters were wearing motorcycle or football helmets, but the police were well-trained and armed. Large amounts of tear gas were used, and at least twice police ran squad cars into the mob. The rioting lasted about half an hour, during which 28 policemen were injured. Six weathermen were shot by the police and an unknown number injured. 68 rioters were arrested. Sheesh. For the next two days, the weathermen held no rallies or protests. Supporters of the Revolutionary Youth Movement, uh, led by Klonsky and Noel, Igna- Noel Ignaten, held peaceful rallies in front of the federal courthouse, an international harvester factory, and Cook County Hospital. The largest events of the Days of Rage took place on Friday, October 9th, when the Revolutionary Youth Movement led an interracial march of 2,000 people through the Spanish-speaking part of Chicago. On October 10th, the weathermen attempted to regroup and resume their demonstrations. Excuse me. About 300 protesters marched through the Loop, Chicago's main business district, watched by a double line of heavily armed police. A protester suddenly broke through the police lines and rampaged through the Loop, smashing the windows of cars and stores. The police were prepared and quickly isolated the rioters, and within 15 minutes more than half of the crowd had been arrested. The Days of Rage cost cost Chicago and the state of Illinois $183,000. That's a lot of money. Uh, $100,000 for the National Guard expenses, $35,000 in damages, and $2,000 for one injured citizen's medical expenses. Most of the weathermen and SDS leaders were now in jail, and the weathermen would have to pay over $243,000 for their bail. Uh, 
Keep going. Um, on February 21st, 1970, at around 4.30 a.m., three gasoline-filled Molotov cocktails exploded in front of the home of New York Supreme Court Justice John M. Murtaugh, who was presiding over the pretrial hearings of the so-called Panther 21, members of the Black Panther Party over a plot to bomb New York landmarks and department stores. Justice Murtaugh and his family were unharmed, but two panes of the, fr of the front window were shattered, an overhanging wooden eave was scorched, and the paint on a car in the garage was charred. Sheesh. Free the Panther 21 and Viet Cong Have One were written in large red letters on the sidewalk in front of the judge's house at 529 West 217th Street in Inwood neighborhood of Manhattan. The judge's house had been under hourly police surveillance and an unidentified woman called the police a few minutes before the explosion to report several prowlers there, which resulted in police car being sent immediately to the scene. In the preceding hours, Molotov cocktails had been thrown at the second floor of Columbia University's International Law Library at 434 West 116th Street and at a police car parked across the street from the Charles Street Police Station in the West Village of Manhattan, of Manhattan uh, as well as at an Army and Navy recruiting booths on Nostrand Avenue on the eastern fringe of the Brooklyn College campus in Brooklyn, causing no or minimal damage in incidents of unknown relation to that at Judge Murtaugh's home. According to the December 6, uh, 1970 New Morning Changing Weather, Weather Underground communique signed by Bernadine Dorn and Kathy Walkerson, the firebombing of Judge Murtaugh's home in solidarity with Panther 21 was carried out by four members of the New York cell that was devastated two weeks later uh, during a townhouse explosion. Uh, on March 6, 1970, during, preparation, during preparations for the bombing of a non-commissioned officer's dance at Fort Dix U.S. Army uh, and for Butler Library at Columbia University, there was an explosion in Greenwich Village uh, in a Greenwich Village safe house when the dynamite used in bomb construction prematurely detonated for unknown reasons. Huh. Weather Underground members Diana Auden, Ted Gold, and Terry Robbins died in the explosion. Kathy Wilkerson and Kathy Bowden escaped unharmed. The site of the village explosion was the former residence of Merrill Lynch, brokerage firm co-founder Charles Merrill, the childhood son, uh, home of his son, poet James Merrill. The younger Merrill subsequently memori memorialized the event in his poem, 18 West 11th Street, the tile being the address of the Brownstone townhouse. Yeah. An FBI report later stated that the group had possessed enough explosions to level both sides of the street. Damn. Um, after the Greenwich Village townhouse explosion, per the 1969 uh, Flint War Council decisions, uh, the group was now well underground and began to refer to themselves as the Weather Underground Organization. At this juncture, the Weather Underground shrank considerably, becoming even fewer than they had been when they first formed. The group was devastated by the loss of their friends, and in late, uh, in late April 1970, members of the Weathermen met in California to discuss what had happened in New York and the future of the organization. The group decided to reevaluate their strategy, particularly regarding their initial belief in the acceptability of human casualties, and rejected such, such, tactics, such tactics as kidnapping and assassinations. That's hard, I know. Yeah. No, for real, though. <laughs> <laughs> in 2003, Weather Underground members stated in interviews that they wanted to convince the American public that the United States was truly responsible for the calamity in Vietnam. The group began striking at night, bombing empty offices with warnings always issued in advance to ensure a safe evacuation. 
According to David Gilbert, who took part in the 1981 Brinks robbery that killed two police officers and a Brinks guard and was jailed for murder, uh, the, quote, their goal was not to hurt any people and a lot of people and a lot of work went into that. But we wanted to pick targets that showed the public who was responsible for what was really going on. After the Greenwich Village explosion and a review of the documentary film The Weather Underground, a Guardian journalist restated the film's contention that no one was killed by the Weather Underground organization bombs. Um, we already talked about Fred Hampton, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> On June 9th, 1970, a bomb made with 10 sticks of dynamite exploded in, a t in the 240 Center Street, the headquarters of the New York City Police Department. The explosion was preceded by a warning about six minutes prior to the detonation and was followed by the uh, WUO claim of responsibility. On July 23, 1970, a Detroit federal grand jury indicted 13 Weatherman members in a national bombing conspiracy, along with several un un unnamed co-conspirators. Ten of the 13 had already, uh, already had ex outstanding warrants. In September 1970, the group accepted a $20,000 payment from the largest international psychedelic drug, uh, drug distribution organization called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love to break LSD advocate Timothy Leary out of prison in uh, San Luis Obispo, uh, California, and transport him and his wife to Algeria, where Leary joined Eldridge Cleaver. Rumors also circulated that the funds were donated by an internationally known female folk singer in Los Angeles or by Elphins Murphy, which was John Lennon's backup band in New York City and was a factor with the attempted deportation of Lennon, who had donated bail money for radical groups. Um, in October 1970, Bernardine Dorn was put on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, which we talked about last mm -hmm. time. On May 19, 1972, Ho Chi Minh's birthday, the Weather Underground placed a bomb in the women's bathroom in the Air Force wing of the Pentagon. The damage caused flooding that destroyed computer tapes holding classified information. Other radical groups worldwide, other radical groups worldwide applauded the bombing, uh, illustrated by German youths protesting against American military systems in Frankfurt. Uh, this was in retaliation for the U.S. bombing raid in Hanoi. Um, in 1973, the government requested dropping charges against most of the Weather Underground organization members. The request cited a recent decision by the Supreme Court of the United States that barred electronic surveillance without a court order. The Supreme Court decision would hamper any prosecution of the Weather Underground organization's cases. In addition, the government did not want to reveal foreign intelligence secrets that the trial would unveil. Mm -hmm. Bernadine Dorn was removed from the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list on 7 September 1973. As with the earlier federal grand juries that subpoenaed Leslie Bacon and Stu Albert in the U.S. Capitol bombing cases, these investigations were known as quote-unquote fishing expeditions. Um, The evidence that was gathered through these fishing ex expeditions uh, were gathered through black, black, black bag jobs, including illegal mail openings that involved the FBI and the United States Postal Service, burglaries by FBI field offices, and electronic surveillance by the Central Intelligence Agency against the support network, friends and family members of the Weather Underground as part of Nixon's COINTELPRO apparatus, which I've also talked about before. Uh, these grand juries caused, by, uh, caused Sylvia Jane Brown, Robert Gabbard, 
and future members of the Seattle Weather Collective to be subpoenaed in Seattle and Portland for the investigation of one of the first and last captured Weather Underground Organization members. Four months afterwards, the cases were dismissed. The decisions in these cases led directly to the subsequent resignation of FBI Director L. Patrick Gray and the federal indictments of W. Mark Felt, or Deep Throat, and Edwin Miller, and which earlier was the factor for the removal of the federal most wanted stat status against members of the Weather Underground Organization in 1973. Um, with the help of Clayton Van Leidegraaff, the Weather Underground sought a more Marxist-Leninist ideological approach to the post-Vietnam uh, post-Vietnam War reality. The leading members of the Weather Underground, Bill Ayers, Bernadine Dorn, Jeff Jones, and Celia Sojourn, collaborated on ideas and published a manifesto, Prairie Fire, the Politics of Revolutionary Anti-Imperialism. The name came from a quote by Mao Zedong, a single spark can set a prairie fire. By the summer of 1974, 5,000 copies had surfaced in coffee houses, bookstores, and public libraries across the U.S. leftist newspapers uh, across the U.S., Leftist newspapers praised the manifesto. Abby Hoffman publicly praised Prairie Fire and believed every American should be given a copy. The manifesto's influence initiated the formation of the Prairie Fire organiza uh, Organizing Committee in several American cities. Hundreds of above-ground activists helped further the new political vision of the Weather Underground. Essentially, after the 1969 failure of the Days of, Ra Days of Rage to involve thousands of youth in massive street fighting, uh, Weather announced most of the left and decided to operate as an uh, isolated underground group. Prairie Fire urged people to never dissociate mass struggle from revolutionary violence. To do so, asserted Weather, was to do the state's work. Just as in 1969 to 1970, Weather still refused to renounce revolutionary violence for, uh, for, quote, to leave people unprepared to fight the state is to seriously mislead them about the inevitable nature of what lies ahead. However, the decision to build on only an underground group caused the Weather Underground to lose sight of its commitment to mass struggle and made future alliances with the mass movement difficult and tenuous. By 1974, Weather had recognized the shortcomings and in Prairie Fire detailed a different strategy for the 1970s, which demanded both mass and clandestine organizations. The role of the clandestine organization would be to build consciousness of action and prepare the way for the development of a people's militia. Concurrently, the role of the mass movement, i.e. above-ground Prairie Fire Collective, would include support for and encouragement of armed action. Such an alliance would, according to the Weather Underground, help create a sea for the guerrillas to swim in. According to Bill Ayers, in the late 1970s, Weathermen groups split further into two factions, the May 19th Communist Organization and the Prairie Fire Collective, with Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers in the latter. Prairie Fire Collective favored coming out of hiding and establishing an above-ground revolutionary mass movement, um, with most world, uh, Weather Underground organization members facing the limited criminal charges, uh, which, had been, which had been previously dropped against them, um, making the creation of an above-ground organization more feasible. The May 19th Communist Organization continued in hiding Sorry. Okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Okay. Uh, the May 19th Communist Organization continued in hiding as a clandestine organization. Decisive factor in Dorn's coming out of hiding were her concerns about her children, which we talked about last time. Um, the Prairie Fire Collective faction started to surrender to the authorities in the late 1970s into the early 1980s. The remaining Weather Underground members continued to attack uh, U.S. institutions into the 1980s. 
Despite the change to their legal status, the Weather Underground remained un underground for a few more years. Uh, by 1976, the organization was disintegrating. The Weather Underground held a conference in Chicago called Hard Times. The idea was to create an umbrella organization for all radical groups. However, the event turned sour when Hispanic and black groups accused the Weather Underground and the Prairie Fire Committee of limiting their roles in racial issues. The Weather Underground faced accusations of abandonment of the revolution by reversing their original ideology. The conference increased decision, uh, the conference increased divisions within the Weather Underground. East Coast members favored the commitments of violence and challenged commitments of old leaders, Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers, and Jeff Jones. These older members found they were no longer viable for federal prosecution because of illegal wiretaps and the government's unwillingness to reveal sources and methods favored uh, a strategy of inversion where they would be above ground revolutionary leaders. Jeremy Varon argues that by 1977, the Weather Underground organization had, officially, had unofficially disbanded. Matthew Steen appeared on the lead segment of CBS's 60 Minutes in 1976 and was interviewed by Mike Wallace about the ease of creating fake identification, the first ex-Weatherman interview on national television. The House document has the date wrong. Uh, it aired February 1st, 1976, and the title was Fake ID. Um, the federal government estimated that only 38 weathermen had gone underground in 1970, though the estimates varied widely, according to a variety of official and unofficial sources, as between 50 and 600 members. Most modern sources lean uh, towards a much larger number than the FBI reference. An FBI estimate in 1976, or slightly later, of the current membership was about 30 or fewer members. Mm-hmm. Um, We've only got a few more of these, so I'm going to try to get through them really quickly. Uh, 1977, five uh, Weather Underground organization members were arrested on conspiracy to bomb the office of California State Senator John Briggs. It was later revealed that the Revolutionary Committee and the PFOC had been uh, infiltrated by the FBI for almost six years. FBI agents Richard G uh, J. Giannotti and William D. Reagan lost their cover in November when federal judges needed their testimony to issue warrants to, for the arrest of Clayton Van Lytograff and four weather people. The arrests were the result of the infiltration. Um, the U.S. government states that years after the dissolution of the Weather Underground, three former members, Kathy Budin, uh, Judith Ellis Clark, and David Gilbert, joined the May 19th Communist Organization on October 20th, 1981, in Nanuet, New York. The group helped the Black Liberation Army rob a Brinks armored truck containing 1.6 million. The robbery was violent, resulting in the deaths of three people, including Waverly Brown, the first black police officer on the Nyack Police Force. Budin, Clark, and Gilbert were found guilty and sentenced to lengthy terms in prison. Uh, the media reports listed them as former Weathermen Underground members, considered the last gasp of the Weather Underground. The documentary, The Weather Underground, described the Brinks robbery as the unofficial end of the Weather Underground. Um, and that's about it. Touche. So that was the, uh, the Weather Underground organization. They were... Like I said last time, the uh, the rock stars of American terrorism <laughs> in the 1970s, and hopefully uh, you know a little bit more about That's, them now. Yeah, I do. Good. Especially since I knew <laughs> very little to begin with. So what do you have for us this week? I have a lady named Jacqueline Cochran, and we're going to learn a little bit about her today. Well, that name sounds familiar, but I don't know it why. It might. You'll find out. 
So Jacqueline Cockburn was actually born Bessie Lee Pittman in 1906 in Pensacola, Florida. She was the youngest of five children. Um, um, while her child, while her family was not rich, Cochran's childhood living in a small town Florida was similar to those in other families of that time and place, because there was a little bit of debate about that. Okay. Because um, she may have lied <laughs> um, later in life. So in about 1920, she would have been 13 or 14, as any young lady at that time at uh-huh. that age, she married Robert Cochran okay. and gave birth to a son, Robert Jr., allegedly, um, <laughs> who died in 1925 at the age of five. After the marriage ended, which ended, I think, two years after the son died is what I remember reading, she kept the name Cochran and began using Jacqueline or Jackie as her given name. Mm -hmm. Jacqueline then became a hairdresser and got a job in Pensacola, eventually winding up in New York City, though. There she used her looks and driving personality to get a job at a prestigious salon at Saks Fifth Avenue. Ooh la la. Although Cochran, Cochran denied her family and her past, she remained in touch with them and provided for them over the years. All right. um, some of her family even moved to her ranch in California after she remarried, uh, which we'll get to shortly. Okay. Um, however, this is what they don't want really to go into depth of like the psyche about this or why she may have done this. But however, they instructed to always say that they were her adopted family. Um, Cochran apparently wanted to hide from the public, the early chapters of her life, and was successful in doing so, and it wasn't until after her death that people really knew the actual details. Okay. Um, only later in life did Cochran meet Floyd Boschwick Odlum, founder of Atlas Corp and CEO of RKO in Hollywood, so a really poor guy. Okay. Not a big, not a big baller. Not rich at all. Yeah. <laughs> 14 years her senior, he was reputed to be one of the ten richest men in the world. That's gross. <laughs> Odlum became enamored of Cochran and offered to help her establish a cosmetics business. But she was always fascinated by the idea of flying. I mean, I am too, which is mm-hmm. why I kind of looked up this kind of stuff. Yeah. She took her first flying lessons in 1932 and got her pilot's license in three short weeks. <laughs> three short weeks. Three short weeks. Not long weeks. That's, short weeks. That's not enough to get a pilot's license. I, well, it was for her. <laughs> she soon mastered the technical aspects of aviation and navigation, which is important when you're in the air. Yeah. Uh, later studying privately with a Navy pilot friend in San Diego. Meanwhile, in 1935, she was still doing her cosmetics stuff. Uh, she organized a cosmetics firm, Jacqueline Cochran Cosmetics, which grew and prospered under her management until she sold it like uh, 30 years later in 1963. Okay. Um, just a little more background on that. So it's not like she wasn't making her own money either. Right. Uh, she then, they said soloed, so I guess you need your pilot's license, but you still have to be with somebody. You she need then, an instructor with you yeah. for, like, I think it's like 10,000 hours right now. Yeah, you have to, and you have to keep the hours up every year yeah. or you lose your license. Yeah. Um, she then soloed and within two years obtained her commercials pilot's license. Odlum, whom she did marry in 1936 um, after his divorce, was um, uh, an astute financer like this and savvy marketer who recognized the value of publicity for her business. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Um, calling her line of cosmetics Wings to Beauty, which is kind of cute. Uh-huh. I, I can't deny that. Wings to Beauty. She flew her own aircraft around the country promoting her products. Years later, um, 
Odlum used his Hollywood connections to get Marilyn Monroe to endorse her line of lipstick. Okay. Yeah. Known by her friends as Jackie and maintaining the Cochrane name, she was one of she was one of three women to compete in the McRobertson Air Race in 1934. In 1937, she was the only woman to compete in the Bendix race and worked with Amelia Earhart to open the, the race to women. Okay. That year, she also set a new women's national speed record. And by 1938, she was considered the best female pilot in the United States. She had won the Bendix and set a new transcontinental speed record as well as altitude records. Okay. Just crazy. So Jacqueline was the first woman to fly a bomber across the Atlantic, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. She won five, they're called Harmon Trophies, um, which is like, you know, it's flying so many times yeah. and like all these things happening. I, I looked it up and now I can't remember because it's been a couple days. Um, sometimes called the Speed Queen. At the time of her death, no other pilot held more speed, distance, or altitude records in aviation history than her, which... Crazy. Yeah. Um, before the United States, ah, I lost my spot. Before the United States joined World War II, Jacqueline was part of Wings for Britain, an organization that ferried American-built aircraft to Britain, becoming the first woman to fly a bomber. Like I said, across yeah. the Atlantic, it called and the the bomber because you know every plane has a name. Yeah. Was called Lockheed Lockheed Hudson Five. Five. I guess there were four others. There could have been more after that one. Who knows? <laughs> in Britain, she volunteered her services to the Royal Air Force. For several months, she worked for the British Air Transport Auxiliary, the ATA, mm-hmm. recruiting qualified women pilots in the United States and taking them to England, where they joined the ATA. Jacqueline attained the, ra- the rank of flight captain, um, equivalent to major in the Air Force, which is kind of high up there yeah. in the ATA. So, in September of 1939, Cochran wrote to Eleanor Roosevelt to introduce the proposal of starting a woman's flying division in the Army Air Force. She okay. felt that qualified women pilots could do all of the domestic non-combat aviation jobs necessary in order to release more male pilots for combat. Um, she pictured herself in command of these women with the same standings as Colonel uh, Avita Culp Hobby who was then director of the Women's Army Auxiliary Corp., the WAAC. Mm. And the WAC was given full military status July 1st, 1943, thus making them part of the Army, which is right smack dab in the middle of World War II. Right. Um, at the same time, the unit was renamed the Women's Army Corp., okay. which I think we're a little more familiar with. Yeah. When we, we read our history books, that's what they usually use. The WAC. Yeah. With just one A. <laughs> That same year, Jacqueline wrote a letter to Lieutenant Colonel Robert Olds, who was helping to organize the Air Corps Fairing Command for the aircraft at the time. Fairing Command was originally a career aircraft delivery service, but evolved into the air transport branch of the Air Force. Okay. Um, which is, yeah, just combine it onto one thing, make it a little less confusing, please. Yeah. Those, the, those kind of like reorganizations happen all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, in the letter, Jacqueline suggested that women pilots be employed, like she had said to Roosevelt earlier, to fly non-combat missions for the new command. And in early 1941, uh, Robert Olds asked Jacqueline to find out how many women pilots there were in the United States, mm-hmm. what their flying times were, their skills, their interest in flying for the country, and personal information about them. 
Um, she used records from the Civil Aeronautics Administration to gather this data. So at least they were at least keeping tabs. Oops, I did something. <laughs> Fix that right away or something. I get really confused. Okay. Um, in spite of pilot shortages, uh, there is a Lieutenant General Henry H. Happ Arnold uh, was the person who needed to be convinced that women pilots were the solution to this staffing problem, mm -hmm. as they put it. When Arnold asked Jacqueline to go to Britain to study the ATA, Jacqueline asked 76 of the most qualified female pilots identified during the research she had done earlier for the other lieutenant to come along and fly for the ATA. Qualifications for these women were high, at least 300 hours of flying time, uh, but most of the women pilots had over 1,000 hours. Those who made it to Canada found out that it that the washout rate was also high, which I don't, I'm trying to remember what that was. It said, all it says is a total of 25 women passed the test and two months later in March 1942, they went to Britain with Jacqueline to join the ATA. Yeah. Um, Jacqueline's experience in Britain with the ATA convinced her that women pilots could be trained to do much more than just fairing. Lobbying Arnold later uh, for expanded flying opportunities for female pilots he, he sanctioned the creation of the Women's Flying Training Detachment. That's such a weird thing. WFTD. Mm -hmm. um, headed by Jacqueline herself. So yeah. in August of 1943, um, the Women's Flying Training and the other training corporation that they had put together in America all came together to create the Women Air Force Service Pilots, WASP. Um, with Jacqueline as the director and Nancy Love as the head of the ferrying division. WASP is a much better acronym. WASP is ten times better. <laughs> as the director of WASP, Jacqueline supervised the training of hundreds of women pilots at the former Avenger Field in Sweetwater, Texas, from August 1943 to December 1944. Um, for her wartime services, she received the Distinguished Service Medal in 1945. Her award of this medal was announced in a War Department press release dated March 1st, 1945, which stated that Jacqueline was the first woman civilian to receive the Distinguished Service Medal, which was then the highest non-combat award presented to the United, by the United States government. Okay. And then it, it did have a little asterisk because, you know, hashtag armchair apocrypha. Right. It said, in actuality, however, a few civilian women did receive the Distinguished Service Medal for service during the First World War but then it didn't explain past that. <laughs> so at the war's end, Jacqueline was hired by a magazine to report on global post-war events. In this role, she witnessed Japanese General Tomoyuki Yamashita's surrender in the Philippines okay. and was then the first non-Japanese woman to enter to Japan after the war, but, um, but citations needed. And then this is part of the same sentence, but she's not, she's not, I don't think she's the first... Um, non-Japanese woman, but she also attended the Nuremberg trials in Germany later. Okay. So also, Jacqueline, after the war and all the post-war, everyone comes back, uh, Jacqueline began flying the new jet aircraft going on to set numerous records. Um, and this is what she's most famous for is like her flying afterwards. So most conspicuously, well, the thing that she's most remembered for, she's the first woman pilot, woman pilot to go supersonic. Okay. In 1952, Jacqueline is now 47. She decided to challenge the world speed record for women, um, then held by Jacqueline Oriole. So I guess if your name Jacqueline, you just got <laughs> to be a pilot. 
She tried to borrow an F-86 from the U.S. Air Force, but was refused. <laughs> she was introduced to an Air Vice Marshal who, with the permission of the Canadian Minister of Defense, arranged for her to borrow um, an airplane that I'm not even going to tell you what it is because it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, so on May 18th, 1953, Jacqueline set a new 100-kilometer speed record of 1,050 kilometers an hour. Later on, in June 3rd, so what? Two weeks later, she, yeah. she set a new 15-kilometer closed-circuit record of 1,078 kilometers an hour, and encouraged then by someone, a major, with whom Jacqueline shared a really lifelong friendship with, on whatever. She flew again. Okay. And then this was the average speed of 652 miles an hour during this course, though, because I don't remember how long her or how long her run was. Um, during the course of this run, the plane that she was flying mm -hmm. went supersonic, and Cochrane became the first one to break the sound barrier. Nice. And that is what she is like most known for. Okay. Um, breaking the sound barrier, like that's fucking crazy. <laughs> like I know. Um, I probably read about her when I was going through my, like, space obsession. And, oh, you probably did, yeah. Because yeah. her name sounds really familiar. Yeah. In the 1960s, uh, Jacqueline was a sponsor for the Mercury 13 program, an early effort to test the ability of women to be astronauts. Yeah. 13 women pilots passed the same preliminary test as the male astronauts of the Mercury program. I remember I saw a documentary about this, and it was really interesting. Yeah. I think it's called Mercury 13. It was, like, a Netflix one. Um, before it was canceled, but it seemed like she was split on whether women should, not women should go to space, but whether money should be spent right now. I, I can't remember. I like decided to leave it out because I was really confused by the way yeah. it was worded because it literally said she put part of the effort to get this started. So I was really confused when it's like, but then she didn't, but she did. It made no sense. We're going to go with hashtag armchair photographer. <laughs> she did, but the program was canceled. Yeah. And then Jack, and then it kind of just ends there. I mean, she's probably like in her 60s or whatever at this point. Because then all it says really is Jacqueline died on August 9th, 1980 at her home in California that she shared with her husband. Uh, but he had died four years earlier. And she was 74 years old when she died. So I'm guessing that she just died of like heart failure, heart attack, something like that. They didn't really specify. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't anything. Um... I know I talked through that really fast. I don't know why. <laughs> I just talk really fast when yeah. I get... I'm not nervous, but, <laughs> but I talk fast when I get nervous. But I, I thought that was a really cool yeah. little story about her. She, so, yeah. The, I was looking up, like, female pilots or something. Yeah. And her name came up. And the name sounds familiar because, yeah, her breaking the first one, breaking the sound barrier. I'm like, I've heard this before. And she might be mentioned in... That Mercury 13 documentary stuff that I saw like a couple years ago, yeah. and I have a hard, I don't have the best memory, so I can't remember. Right. But it was an interesting thing. I remember when they did the test on it on, I don't know if it's Netflix, but I must, I think it is, on the documentary. Um, one of the things that you do is you have to submerge them into this water and see mm -hmm. how long they'll like last under there. Yeah. Um, but you can breathe. That's the whole thing. But then after a while, you just freak out, and apparently the woman stayed in twice as long as the men did and then there were some jokes about like yeah because they're not with their children and stuff like oh my god it's so sexist so but sexist. it's true they were talking about the most shocking thing was in that test 
the women completely killed the men and like how long you could be submerged underwater. But I digress. (laughs) So that's Jacqueline Cochran. Nice. Mm -hmm. Good episode. I know. I really want to learn to fly (laughs) a plane. Oh, whatever. If you're a pilot named Jacqueline, we'd love to hear from you. Oh, yes, please. Um, only Jacqueline's. Only Jacqueline's, though. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Is that it for this week? Yeah, sorry. Okay, <laughs> cool. We, like, flew through it. <laughs> you did. You gave us a lot of information, though, so it was pretty good. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's get out of here. Um, as always, you can find our website at uh, absentactivismarts.wordpress.com. We've got artwork from Katie White. Uh, she is open for commissions. Um, we've got music from Chet Osman and Joshua Paul Brooks. Uh, I've got some stories up um, that are free. I've got my novels up, which are both on Amazon in uh, paperback or Kindle editions. Um, we are on Facebook at Absent Activism Arts. We share a lot of uh, Louisville local uh, activism opportunities, artists, um, trying to focus on progressive stuff. Uh, If you're a progressive artist or socialist artist in Louisville, feel free to get in touch with us. Um, We are on Twitter at AbsintheActArts. I am on uh, Instagram if you want to see pictures of Mercury. Uh, Cute pictures of Mercury. He is super cute. At AWM Rights. Um, I'm also on the Fediverse on uh, Macedon and Diaspora at AWM Rights. Um, I think that's it. Sounds good. Oh, we are on Patreon if you want to yeah. consider give a, giving us money um, so that we can make better podcasts and uh, <laughs> uh, help spread the words about uh, Louisville activists and artists. Um, uh, we are on Patreon at Absinthe Activism Arts. Uh, and I think that that is it. Uh, so let's get out of here. Sounds good. Uh, until next time, listeners, we love you and uh, have a good week. Mortar shells have deafened my ears, but the ringing has lessened. Dreams I've dreamed, they've threatened My sanity at your presence is a blessing For you make me forget The times tragedy and I had met And the nights I'd awakened in sweat it Seems the years before you were my greatest debt darling, look above The moon fits the clouds like a glove Honey darling, my love 
Sometimes I fish the sky for what I'm thinking of Cause my tongue stays tied in knots This feeling inside, can I ride it to the top? My hands have closed the gates Now we're inside, let's love and leave it up to fate